The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One thing that's frustrating as an observer of this litigation to watch is that the parties have staked out these positions that are just diametrically opposed visions of the First Amendment. On one vision, on you know, Texas's vision, the First Amendment has absolutely nothing to say about the ability of states to regulate the social media platforms. And on the other vision, the platforms, any regulation of the platforms is, you know, if not per se unconstitutional, then almost certainly unconstitutional. And you know, if I had to choose between you know, these absolutist visions, I would choose the platform's vision of the First Amendment. But I, you know, to be honest, I find them both unattractive. I'm Quinta Jurassic, senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 23rd, 2022. Our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem has been taking a bit of a hiatus, but today we're back. On this episode, we're discussing the recent ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in Net Choice v. Paxton, upholding a Texas law that binds large social media platforms to certain transparency requirements and significantly limits their ability to moderate content. The decision is truly a wild ride, so unhinged that it's difficult to figure out where First Amendment law about social media platforms might go next. To discuss, I sat down with Alan Rosenstein, my fellow senior editor at Lawfare, and Alex Abdo, the litigation director at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, who's come on the podcast before to discuss the case. We did our best to make sense of the Fifth Circuit's ruling and chart out alternative possibilities for what good faith jurisprudence on social media regulation might look like. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 23rd. The Fifth Circuit is wrong on the internet. Alex and Alan, thank you for coming on to talk about what I think is truly one of the wildest appellate court decisions I have read in a very long time. Before we jump into the details, though, I do want to start with an overview of the case itself. Alan, would you be able to give listeners kind of the the short version of what exactly <laughs> this is about? Uh, sh- I'll certainly try to give to give the short version. So this is about a Texas law, commonly known as HB twenty. Um, that does a lot of things, but the main thing it does is it purports to limit the extent to which social media platforms, and really we're talking about the the big ones, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and that's and, and and those platforms. It purports to limit how much they can moderate what their users say on the platforms. the The law uses the language of censorship, but really we're talking about the same thing. And what's notable about the Texas law is that it limits content moderation based on the viewpoint of the user or another person. Uh, This is the real kind of core of the matter. Uh, So basically, it prohibits moderation on a very broad basis, right? On the basis really of the the political message of the content. Now, when this law was first passed, the platforms uh, under NetChoice, which is their trade organization, uh, quickly went to the district court to get it enjoined, the district court did, finding, applying sort of standard First Amendment case law that the law was unconstitutional. Then Texas appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which I think in a move that surprised many people, lifted the stay of the district court in an opinion that had actually no opinion attached to it. Uh, So we were left wondering what the Fifth Circuit saw in this law that the rest of us uh, all kind of assumed was pretty clearly unconstitutional. 
the platforms then took it up to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court, um, and I think it was a five to four, maybe six to three decision, I don't remember, but it was a split decision, overturned the Fifth Circuit's stay of the district court's injunction of the Texas law. So basically, until uh, last Friday, when the Fifth Circuit came out with this opinion, the law was enjoined. And now the Fifth Circuit, having issued an opinion that not just upholds the law, but upholds the law on very aggressive, and I think it's fair to say fairly radical grounds, the law will at some point, once all the kind of judicial paperwork comes through, will go into force um, unless the platforms succeed in getting either the Fifth Circuit on banc or the Supreme Court to issue yet another stay while this continues, which I think is what most watchers think will happen. But, you know, within a matter of days, it may very well be that Facebook and Twitter are no longer able to moderate huge swaths of their platforms, at least to the extent that uh, they continue to give Texas access. Yeah, so that that Supreme Court ruling was five to four. It was an uh, interesting lineup in the the dissents. Uh, Alito, Thomas Gorsuch, and Kagan, uh, really a, a dark horse there. And she did not give us any indication of why uh, she had she would have uh, denied the application to vacate. Alex, is there anything you want to add there about the basic details of the case and the procedural history that listeners should keep in their minds? Well, I'll just pick up on one thing you just said, Quinta, which is. Justice Kagan's, you know, vote earlier in the case, it'll be really interesting to see where she ends up once either this case or the Florida case or both together are actually properly before the Supreme Court for a decision, because she does have somewhat idiosyncratic views on the First Amendment, or maybe idiosyncratic is the wrong word. She has uh, less maximalist views on the First Amendment, and it'll be interesting to see where she ends up. Uh, but otherwise, I think, you know, the real conversation here is in the details of the decision itself. And, and I'm sure we're just about to get there, but it's a pretty shocking, shocking decision and, you know, looking forward to discussing it. Yeah. And so just for, for listeners who haven't perhaps been quite as glued to this case, that the Florida case that you mentioned, there's kind of a, a comparable, though different in many ways, Florida law uh, that went through a similar process. The 11th Circuit had a, a I, I think it's fair to say uh, somewhat more careful <laughs> uh, ruling. Um, I don't know if either of you would be able to give a quick overview of that so listeners have a sense of how those compare. You know, it, it uh, held that Florida's law, which prohibited platforms from censoring the views of journalistic enterprises and candidates for political office, it held that that portion of the law was unconstitutional because it overrode the editorial uh, decision-making of the platforms. And, you know, in that way, fundamentally disagreed with the analysis in the Fifth Circuit's decision. On the transparency provisions of Florida's law, it agreed with the Fifth Circuit that those should be subject to uh, review under a Supreme Court decision called Zouderer, which provides for a lower level of scrutiny for requirements that commercial enterprises disclose information about the services that they offer uh, and it held that at least on the record before it, uh, the platforms hadn't made a, a, an adequate showing that they were likely to succeed in challenging the constitutionality of those uh, transparency provisions. But the key you know, difference between the 11th Circuit opinion on the, on the one hand and the 5th Circuit on the other is how they analyzed the basic applicability of the First Amendment to what platforms do when they moderate user content. And the 11th Circuit said, you know, they, they look close enough to... Uh, more traditional media organizations when they engage in that kind of content moderation and so do benefit from the protections of the First Amendment. And it held that Florida hadn't made a sufficient showing to overcome that protection. Yeah. And just quickly following up on on what Alex said about the transparency provisions in the Florida law and, and Zouder, th these transparency provisions, not the exact transparency provisions, but transparency provisions also existed in, in the Texas law. Uh, and in the process of upholding the uh, content moderation provisions of the Texas law, the Fifth Circuit also upheld the transparency provisions of the Texas law. So just to sum up, as these different cases are going through the courts, I think it's useful just to separate two kind of different legal issues. One is this question of whether states can require transparency from the platforms, whether they can require the platforms disclose their policies, provide statistics, provide a complaint and appeals process. Right now, the two circuit court decisions on that are in accord. Both the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit say that they can under this Zouderer test. And not to make predictions, I, I suspect that the Supreme Court 
uh, will agree with that as well. At the very least, that's the much, much less controversial part of these laws. The really controversial part of these laws, and what I suspect we'll spend the most of our time today talking about, are the state attempts to substantively limit how much the platforms themselves can moderate. And there you have a very, very stark circuit split between the 11th Circuit and the 5th Circuit, and also just an issue of immense importance, which is why this probably will at some point end up uh, at the Supreme Court. All right. So I think we've we've set the table. Let's dig into the details to, to mix a metaphor. What did you both make of the opinion? Alex, let me turn to you first. Yeah, well, I, I tipped my hand a minute ago. I, I think it's a shocking ruling. You know, if you're at all familiar with First Amendment rulings over the past 50 years, reading this one will make you feel as though you've entered the twilight zone. And the key analytic move that the Fifth Circuit makes, which I think is just entirely incorrect, uh, is to characterize uh, what the platforms do, which it describes as censorship, as conduct rather than the exercise of editorial discretion that might be protected by the First Amendment. And in that one kind of sleight of hand, it manages to turn these companies, which to my mind are in the business of uh, putting together expressive uh, products and communities and hosting you know, public discourse by their users, it turns them into widget companies for, for, for purposes of the First Amendment. And if you take you know, literally what the Fifth Circuit says, the First Amendment has almost nothing at all to say about uh, the ability of uh, state governments or the federal government to regulate the platforms in whatever way they wish. And ha- you know, having said that, it's not at all surprising that the Fifth Circuit ended up where it did, but it all turned on what I think is this extremely flimsy distinction that it tries to draw between what the platforms do and, you know, what other curatorial enterprises do. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And, and I should also say, I, I am much more sympathetic towards the idea that the government has some role to play in limiting what these companies do in terms of content moderation. And so when I when I sat down to read the Fifth Circuit opinion, I was kind of excited because I thought, you know, maybe they've they've put forward a nuanced way to think about this issue and, and uphold this particular law. I was not a fan of the law, but maybe there's some way they can do that in an interesting way. And it's just a disaster from start to finish, um, making someone even like me worry that my position, which has all been about creating space for state experimentation, actually isn't even feasible if this is what states and certain judges are going to go do with that, uh, in which case maybe we should just prohibit states from mucking around in this, given how unserious they're going to be if they try. You know, Alex referred to this as, uh, or reading this opinion as entering the twilight zone. Um, uh, Genevieve Lakir, who's a, a, at the uh, uh, University of Chicago, she had a, a great tweet about how this is like uh, uh, going into the uh, the upside down uh, from, from Stranger Things. Um, it's just a very strange opinion. And it's strange just from some basic principles of judicial craft, which is that an intermediate court is supposed to at least try to apply Supreme Court precedent faithfully. Um, And there's just a lot of indication that this court was not trying. Some of it is because it almost literally said so. It begins the opinion with this long discussion of the original understanding of the First Amendment when it was ratified in the late 18th century and how this applies to today, which is, I don't know, maybe an interesting conversation, Um, but of course not how the Supreme Court has handled these situations in the past. Um, And then when it finally gets the doctrine, uh, it says this really, um, I think, uh, remarkable uh, statement, uh, which is basically that, well, the platforms don't engage in this historical analysis. Uh, Instead, they just give us a bunch of Supreme Court doctrine, (laughs) which really made my jaw drop because, of course, that is how litigation generally works. You start with the controlling doctrine. So it's really not even clear from a judicial perspective what the Fifth Circuit thinks it's, it's doing. And I think that's particularly clear when you get to the doctrinal analysis that the Fifth Circuit just misapplies the governing law. I just don't think there's any way to read the relevant Supreme Court precedents, precedents that provide a lot of First Amendment protection to editorial decisions by newspapers, by companies, by um, you know organizers of, of marches and gatherings, and say that those don't at all apply to the technology companies. Now, I do think, and I've argued this in lots of different venues um, over the past few years, I think they're not a perfect fit. There's no question that there are differences between a social media platform and a newspaper and that those differences are relevant and should create more of a space for government regulation. But it's just 
not convincing at all as either a doctrinal matter or as Alex points out, just a policy common sense matter to think that the First Amendment should have nothing to say about government's attempts to regulate what, for better or for worse, is the new digital public square and is the most important or increasingly for many of us, the most important venue of uh, communication. And it's this all or nothing approach that the Fifth Circuit takes that to me is the most disappointing and that I think desperately needs to be reversed because this cannot be the framework that we use to deal with these really important policy issues going forward. Can I take a moment just to you know really underscore the first thing that Alan said? You know, one thing that's frustrating as an observer of this litigation to watch is the fact that, and here, Alan, maybe I'm echoing something you said recently in a blog post, that the parties have staked out these positions that are just diametrically opposed visions of the First Amendment. On one vision, on you know Texas's vision, the First Amendment has absolutely nothing to say about the ability of states to regulate the social media platforms. And on the other vision, the platforms, any regulation of the platforms is, you know, if not per se unconstitutional, then almost certainly unconstitutional. And you know, if I had to choose between you know, these absolutist visions, I would choose the platform's vision of the First Amendment. But I, you know, to be honest, I find them both unattractive. And, you know, one thing that we tried to do in our uh, amicus brief was bring a bit of, you know, moderation to the First Amendment discussion, because I don't think the First Amendment forces us uh, to choose between those two visions. And I don't think it'd actually be good for democracy if we were forced to choose between those two visions. Because, you know, the state's vision would allow the state to distort public discourse in ways that I think would ultimately uh, give the government far too much control over what can be said by whom. Uh, and the platform's I, uh, you know, vision, I think, would entirely disable governments from imposing even reasonable regulations of the digital public sphere, which I think would also be bad you know, for, for democracy. Now, a lot of the debate is going to be in, you know, even if you accept that the best analysis is the middle ground. You know, a lot of the debate is going to be over what is a reasonable regulation of the digital public sphere. And I think there's a lot of room for disagreement there. But as much as I agree with, you know, a sentence or two in this opinion, saying that we shouldn't think of these platforms as being entirely indistinguishable from the newspapers, I think the Fifth Circuit just went way too far with, with that argument. And I suspect that Alan agrees. I, I do. I, I'm going to try very hard not to just make this a, a agreement love fest among the three of us. But I, I do think that the answer has to be somewhere in the middle. And, and you know, I think where the disagreement's going to be is, is in applying that intermediate position to the many different permutations of these state laws that uh, are going to come up. Yeah, I think it's striking that uh, this decision is perhaps so bad that it's defeated even Alan's magisterial <laughs> powers of devil's advocacy. <laughs> In, in all seriousness, Alex, I did want to ask you, especially in light of the amicus briefs that, that Knight has submitted in, in this case and in the Florida case, what you thought about Alan's comment that, you know, just the, this opinion is so out there that it may call into question the feasibility of a more intermediate position as a kind of a, a path forward. Alan, I was, I was pretty struck to hear you say that. Um, and Alex, I'm curious for your thoughts. I, I'm not so pessimistic uh, about the possibility of a more nuanced understanding of the First Amendment. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, our judicial system, or our political system, I should say, puts faith in the judiciary to decide legal disputes and to decide those disputes on the basis of principles that are articulated in you know, judicial decisions. And if the idea is that we can't trust the judiciary with a rule that you know, gives the government some authority in some circumstances. And so we have to uh, you know, adopt an absolutist rule. Then I would question you know, the, the, the decision in the first instance to entrust all this authority to the judicial system, because we have to trust the judicial system in either case, either to enforce the absolutist rule or to you know, patrol the boundaries of a more moderate one. And it's not clear to me why, if you don't trust the judiciary in one circumstance, you trust it in the other. Um, and I haven't yet reached that depth of despair or pessimism. And you know, I think there is still uh, value in trying to answer this question as though uh, if we come up with the right answer, our institutions will 
for the most part, enforce it the way we expect them to. And when they don't, you know, we'll, we'll try to vote different people into office who will nominate judges who will. Um, but that, but that's kind of where I am. Alan, I'm curious to hear you sound a little bit more shaken. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to give a little more context to, to what I mean. So there are a couple of us in the Academy who, while not fans of laws like this, because we think they're badly structured and honestly just bad faith, right? They're, they're not actually trying to prevent censorship. They're just for the moment, GOP led, you know, hit jobs. There are some of us who think that it's it's important to bring more nuance to the question of what the First Amendment actually says. And you know, I've written about this. Uh, Genevieve Lakir at Chicago, Evelyn Duick at Stanford have written about this. In fact, Evelyn and Genevieve have written you know a series of really interesting blog posts. Um, I think actually on the Knight uh, website, um, you know, rethinking the First Amendment and trying to you know, again create a little more nuance from the generally absolutist First Amendment positions, and particularly the kind of pro-First Amendment positions or the expansive First Amendment positions that I think generally have been kind of dominant in in the academy, right? Which I think generally has been maybe with some kind of corporate First Amendment arguments put aside, has generally been a big fan of, you know, kind of free free speech as a, as a general matter, which I think all of us are um, to some extent or another. And, and, you know, the three of us, and especially Evelyn and, and Genevieve, have come under quite a bit of criticism for this not just because some people think that they're wrong, in which case that's fine, we can have a substantive disagreement, but because some people think that even raising these arguments, that actually maybe the First Amendment does allow some government regulation and such and such, is just dangerous. Because bad faith actors, like the states of Texas or Florida, right, or some judges or justices, will then use those arguments to reach really bad outcomes that no one supports, like, let's say, the Texas law. And and I generally think that that's not a great critique because at least from the perspective of a scholar, I think you just have to write what you think is true and you know not worry too much about what happens with that. Because otherwise, if you're constantly looking over your shoulder and trying to predict how people are going to use your arguments, really, it's you, you end up with this intellectual self-censorship that makes it just very difficult to do the sort of, I think, dispassionate, abstract thinking that academics are supposed to do, right? That's kind of their value add within the legal discourse. You know, at the same time, though, academics are not just abstract thinkers, right? They're also engaged in this policy world. And I do think it is important when not necessarily doing the First Amendment analysis, but thinking about the normative recommendations about how your analysis should change how, let's say, courts or legislatures should act. You do have to ask yourself, you know, I'm definitely not in the first best world, but am I in like a 37th best world or is it even worse than that? Um, which is to say, um, whenever you're putting forth a nuanced standard, you always have to ask yourself, well, what are the costs of that standard? Um, and you compare that to the rule. And I will say, uh, I am a little shaken and not just by Texas and Florida, uh, but in particular by the fact that the Fifth Circuit and Judge Oldham, who, you know, I, again, say a lot of nasty, you know, I, I say a lot of mean things about his analysis, but he's clearly an intelligent, competent, serious judicial thinker, uh, at least his background suggests that he is. And for him to get this not just wrong, but so epically wrong, really makes me wonder sometimes uh, whether or not we can, or whether or not, let's say, our political and legal community has enough maturity to apply nuanced standards to these kinds of issues. Now, ultimately, Alex, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not, I'm a little shaken. My priors have budged a little bit. I have not given up and I will continue to say what I think the answer should be. But I, I can't pretend that I'm not a little freaked out uh, in a way that I was not before I read the Fifth Circuit opinion on Friday. Can I just add, I, I think this is a really interesting and fascinating conversation, but I, I want to add some perspective that has affected my thinking on this question. Not, not the first because you know, you're right, there are two strains of this argument, the response to, you know, scholarship and advocacy focused on, you know, nuance and First Amendment decision making, you know, the, the first strand, which is just a rejection on the merits or a disagreement on the merits about whether the First Amendment allows for, you know, the, the kind of tinkering that state governments are engaging at all, at all or whether it's absolutist. I, I totally agree with you that that's that's exactly the kind of debate that we should be engaged in if we're trying to find, you know, what the right answer is. And if you're going to put a suggestion out there or an idea out there, you know, best to have that tested in public discourse before, you know, presenting it to a court. Um, the second, you know, strand of the argument, though, the one that you were focused on, which is that even raising these arguments, you know, kind of provides kind of comfort to the enemy, 
I find troubling for a variety of reasons, uh, but I want to just put some perspective on it. There have been a lot of very nominally smart jurists over the last century who have issued, you know, catastrophically bad decisions. Uh, you know, d- decisions that you know would not stand the test of time have not withstood the test of time, and it's easy, I think, in the moment of that catastrophic decision making, to question the whole enterprise of a search for nuance and a search for, you know, the intellectually correct response. And we're in one of those moments right now, you know, a moment where there has been a lot of change in technology. Doctrine has yet to catch up in, you know, while the courts are trying to catch up with the changes in technology, you know, we're going to get a lot of varied opinions and ultimately they'll be resolved by the Supreme court, which also happened, you know, in the, in the past cases, sometimes it was the lower courts in the past cases that issued the ethically bad decision. Sometimes it was a Supreme court, you know, when it was the lower courts, you hope that the Supreme Court got it right. When it was a Supreme Court, you hope that a later Supreme Court, you know, uh, changed course. But to my mind, what we're going through right now, I, I don't think you could put it even in the top five of situations where judicial doctrine seems to have gotten so mangled in the hands of motivated reasoning by uh, by judges as to call into question the whole you know, the, the whole task of nuanced decision-making. That's my own instinct. And that's why I'm not moved by this argument that people like Genevieve shouldn't be articulating their views. I, I also, you know, there's a bit of anti-intellectualism to this argument that I find kind of troubling. And there's also an assumption that, you know, judges like Judge Oldham, you know, are waiting with bated breath to see what progressive scholars say before pouncing, which I find, you know, probably just empirically, hard to defend as, as what is in fact going on, you know, impossible to know. I can't, I can't uh, disprove that that's what's going on. It just seems very unlikely to me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I will say just even looking at the distinction between the 11th Circuit and 5th Circuit opinion. So Alan, I think you wrote in your piece that the 11th Circuit tried to resolve some of these really difficult questions and struggled and the 5th Circuit didn't really try. That They just seem like a completely different genre of writing. You know, the 11th Circuit, it's a recognizably uh, appellate opinion. You know, it, it goes through the legal analysis. The uh, Fifth Circuit opinion, I think Daphne Keller wrote it, you know, the degree of just sort of freely ignoring a precedent of setting aside facts that don't fit has almost a sort of a bullying aspect of a kind of I can say whatever I, I want to say. And because of that, I... I find it difficult to even engage with it as a judicial opinion as opposed to, you know, a really, really long YouTube comment by a, a smart person. <laughs> Unfortunately, we we exist in a world where that that YouTube comment has, you know, judicial force. And so we have to deal with that. But speaking speaking of the Fifth Circuit, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the majority opinion. There's also a dissent. Um, Alex, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, Judge Southwick dissented and issued an opinion that, you know, looked a lot more similar to the 11th Circuit's opinion. And, uh, but just to, to your point, Quinta, the tone of the dissent was so much different than the tone of the majority opinion. You know, and Judge Southwick noted this himself in his opinion. The majority was so convinced of its uh, decision. You know, at various times it said that the platform's argument was essentially ridiculous. I think. Judge Jones in concurrence described one of the platform's arguments as ludicrous. And Judge Southwick had a lot more humility in his decision. He said, you know, the, the platforms aren't a perfect fit for the old, you know, for the old precedent on uh, the media organizations or on parades, for example. But they're a lot closer to that than to, you know, widget companies, widget making companies. And, you know, while this is the precedent that we have and it's the precedent I'm going to use until the Supreme Court tells us otherwise. And it was a much more, you know, moderate decision, not not moderate politically, but moderate temperamentally and in terms of conviction, which I thought, you know, especially refreshing after having read both Judge Oldham's opinion and Judge Jones's concurrence in it. So let's talk then about the question that Alan raised about if we're if we're going to chart a middle path, what does that actually look like? How does that play out? 
in practice, assuming that, you know, the, the judicial actors we're looking at are engaging in good faith. The the main uh, precedent here, I think it's fair to say, is the Zouderer decision, which the Fifth Circuit did rely on in part and came up as well in the Eleventh Circuit analysis. I'm curious for both of your thoughts, you know, what what would you like to see in terms of a middle way here? Alan, let me turn it over to you first. Sure. So, I mean, American constitutional law has ways of dealing with these sorts of disputes where constitutional interests are at stake and where neither side has a monopoly on righteousness. And that intermediate position, uh, fortunately enough, is called intermediate scrutiny, is one of the tiers of scrutiny, right? Between the very, very protective strict scrutiny and the very unprotective rational basis review, you have this thing called intermediate scrutiny. And the idea is that a government regulation is upheld if it advances an important government interest and that it does not substantially burden more speech than is necessary to further those interests. And as a general matter, intermediate scrutiny is what Americans call what the rest of the world calls proportionality review, which is the framework that most advanced constitutional democracies use, again, when thinking about difficult constitutional issues. You know, for, for a background on this whole way of thinking about constitutional rights. I, I highly, highly recommend a book by um, the Columbia law professor Jamal Green called uh, How Rights Went Wrong, all about how one of the reasons why American constitutional law is actually increasingly in this extremist cul-de-sac on a whole host of issues is because American jurists tend to want to either find something protected under the constitution and therefore almost sacred, or find it totally unprotected under the constitution and therefore the government can do whatever it wants. And really the way the rest of the world does it and the way we should do it is to say, look, most issues in normally functioning democracies are ones where both sides have something reasonable to contribute. I think this is a perfect example of that. And here I, I do depart from a lot of the tech companies and a lot of their supporters. I think that governments, whether it's Texas or Florida or any other government, even if they're motivated by partisan motives, because that's generally how politicians act, I think governments absolutely have an interest in making sure that people can express themselves on private platforms. The fact that they're private doesn't mean that the interests and the values underlying the First Amendment right, of free expression no longer apply. And I absolutely think that platforms, even if they're trying really hard, don't necessarily have the incentives in the free market to do content moderation in the way that's best for the discourse. And that at the end of the day, it's the people through their democratically elected representatives who should ultimately be deciding what counts as the best discourse. On the other hand, I also think that platforms, you know, sure have their own First Amendment rights, but most importantly, work to create a communicative environment that encourages their users' First Amendment rights, and in particular, their users' ability to speak freely. And that uh, it's just not the case, as the Fifth Circuit kept saying over and over again in its opinion, that censorship is not speech. Because of course, in order to have a platform that people actually want to hang out on, rather than just a cesspool of pornography and neo-Nazis, you have to have some sort of moderation, which is to say some censorship is necessary in order to have a good speech environment. Now, how exactly you apply that to the facts, this intermediate position is of course the whole question. And I don't think there's an abstract answer. One of the benefits of intermediate scrutiny or proportionality review, however you want to call it, is that it's very, very fact specific. So you have to take each case as it comes. You have to identify its salient features. You develop a, a body of case law over the years. And over time, you hopefully reach some equilibrium where you've kind of figured out what the rules of the road are. You know, in my view, the applying this to the Texas law would result in its invalidation because its substantive content moderation provision is just way too broad. It really does disable the platforms in large parts from creating the sorts of communicative environments that most users will feel safe operating on. But that doesn't mean that all such attempts would be uh, unlawful. And I can imagine situations, you know, just using the Texas and Florida law, maybe combining the Florida law's narrower scope with the Texas's law's narrower remedies, maybe that would satisfy intermediate scrutiny. I'm really curious to hear what Alex thinks about it. Maybe Alex and I disagree, but that, that that's okay. The disagreement is not a problem as long as we're all trying in good faith to deal with the facts before us and over time develop some common wisdom, which by the way, is how law works in every other context. Yes. Yeah, so, and there's a lot that I agree with there. And let me, let me start maybe doctrinally to answer Quinta's question. I, I think that 
there is a doctrinal path already for nuance, nuanced decision-making or nuanced First Amendment analysis as applied to regulation of the social media platforms. And actually, you know, contrary to this critique of, you know, progressive scholarship on the topic, I actually don't think this uh, nuanced path requires any new decision-making from the Supreme Court. I think they've already issued opinions that provide, you know, for these possibilities. So when it comes to transparency uh, measures, I think, Quinta, you had it exactly right. The, you know, relevant Supreme Court decision that may provide for a path for constitutional transparency provisions as applied to the social media platforms is a case called Zouder, which allows uh, governments to require companies to disclose purely factual and uncontroversial information about their services, uh, so long as the requirements don't unduly burden speech. And there are complicated questions about the threshold requirements and you know, what kinds of laws would in fact impose undue burdens when you're talking about the social media platforms. And you know, we could have a whole show where we just discuss those you know, really hard questions. You know, but I think that's the doctrinal path if there is one for uh, constitutional transparency provisions. On more direct regulation of the platforms of the sort that Alan was just discussing, I think there's also a potential pathway anyway. You know, whether it leads to the kinds of laws that you know Alan may want to see, I don't know. But I think the path is in the Supreme Court's decision in Turner, which held that impositions on a company's editorial discretion, which is what these platforms claim Texas's law violates, can be constitutional under the intermediate scrutiny Alan was pointing to, so long as they are content neutral. And, you know, I don't think, you know, Turner has been around for a long time and allows for the possibility. Now, whether there is, in fact, uh, a kind of content neutral regulation directly of the platform's moderation decisions that would survive scrutiny under Turner, I don't know. I haven't yet seen a proposal that I think would be constitutional, but you know every proposal is different, and the interest that each proposal serves might be different. And I think you have to, in each circumstance, just go through the analysis. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I kind of make sort of two two points in response. First, I, I think it's important to distinguish between you know disputes that are irresolvable and disputes that are resolvable in principle, right? So. You know, if, if someone thinks that the First Amendment protects everything and someone thinks that the First Amendment protects nothing, they're just not going to agree. Like it really is two ships passing in the night. And that's just not a good basis for thinking about this sort of policy issue. Then you have disputes that are resolvable in principle. And I think, you know, the discussion that Alex and I could have, right, and, you know, one day we should have it over a beer, is one of these discussions, right? We sort of agree in principle on the framework. We have slightly different priors. We have slightly different empirical assumptions. He's a little more comfortable with this. I'm a little more comfortable with that. But at the end of the day, we can probably come to something close to kind of a, a truce, right, as it were, right, some sort of compromise uh, position. And I think this is ultimately, you know, the, one of the jobs of the course is to articulate to the extent possible frameworks that allow this sort of compromise. Because again, in a, you know, reasonably okay functioning, mature democracy of hundreds of millions of people, at the end of the day, that's the best you can hope for. And that's, you know, what my kind of ultimate concern with the Fifth Circuit opinion is, but it puts forward such an extreme doctrinal framework that this sort of compromise solution is not possible. The second thing I would say, and this is specifically to Alex's question about whether or not you could ever actually write down a law that would be narrow enough to satisfy intermediate scrutiny, though it'd be broad enough that it would actually do something interesting. That is an interesting question. And, you know, I, I think we don't know because, again, I don't think the drafters of the Texas or Florida law were particularly careful. I mean, the Florida law is, I think, much more carefully drafted than the Texas law. The Texas law really just does. I mean, I don't know who wrote that, but I, they were clearly not trying very hard. You know, so the question is, could you sit down and write such a law? But even if you couldn't, it still makes sense to hold open the doctrinal possibility that you could, because that itself has a disciplining effect on the platforms. You know, I think one of the reasons that content moderation has reached the point that it has, where everyone's upset with it, is not just that it's hard, though that's a main reason, definitely. It's that the legal regime that the platforms have operated under since really the 1996 Communications Decency Act, and of course, the famous Section 230, that's part of it, um, has been one of perceived, at least, total impunity. 
And you know, if you're operating, if you're a platform and you believe that the government has either granted you total control or has washed its hands of you, right? And here I want to be sympathetic to platforms that have kind of been put in this weird position of being given all this authority to completely structure our digital public square to become the arbiters of truth, right? That Mark Zuckerberg didn't want them to become um, and now suddenly being yelled at about it by uh, Republican states. You know, if you're in that situation, you might be maybe a little less sensitive to the sorts of compromises that you have to make. So you know, even if it's going to be hard for a state government to actually adopt, to write a law that satisfies intermediate scrutiny, just that possibility, I think, has a useful disciplining effect on platforms to keep them from deviating too much beyond you know, what ultimately the public can bear. And I should, I, I agree with all that, Alan, and I should actually amend what I said. I can imagine laws that would survive intermediate scrutiny in, in this area. Maybe there are two buckets. You know, one I would think of as a kind of easier bucket, which would be structural approaches to the platform's market position. So an interoperability requirement, you know, one that would require Facebook to make its platform interoperable with other platforms to make sure that everybody can speak you know, to one another if they want to, or to make sure that competitors to Facebook's newsfeed could emerge um, that would, you know, give you different views into your posts. So instead of seeing, you know, your your feed uh, in the order that Facebook wants you to see it in, you see it in the order that NPR does or Fox News does or CNN does, et cetera. Um, and I think there are other laws like that. I think of a privacy law, for example, as a really important law that you know, Congress ought to pass, and that may end up limiting the stranglehold that the platforms currently have over private user data, which gives them their dominant market position. And, and, you know, maybe also coincidentally makes their business model of targeted advertisements a little bit less lucrative uh, and maybe also less effective in, you know, in the way it's hijacked by uh, political actors and, and malicious actors to manipulate people's votes in the lead up to an election. So that's kind of one bucket, you know, of laws that I think uh, would potentially be subject to intermediate scrutiny and, and pass. And there may be, you know, other laws that more, you know, directly go at content moderation that, you know, that would pass as well. And there may even be some that survive strict scrutiny. You know, one, you know, thought experiment I've often gone through is that is has to do with the, hypothetical that Jonathan Zetrain posed some years ago, where he said in a close election, he thought Facebook would have the power to change the, you know, to change the results just by uh, tweaking its algorithm to show, get out the vote messages to one side or the other, you know, on the political divide. And, you know, you can imagine a very narrowly drawn law that operated just in say the week leading up to a national election that tried to prevent that kind of problem. You know, I, I could see an argument that that kind of a law would be constitutional. I can also see really strong arguments against it because I don't think that kind of law would be constitutional as applied to, for example, traditional media companies. But as you said, Alan, and I agree, you know, the platforms are not traditional media companies. They're different and those differences, you know, may matter in terms of the strength of the government's interest in any particular uh, regulation and also in the burden that the law imposes on the platform's editorial decision-making, which I think is, you know, qualitatively different than, uh, than how the, you know, traditional media companies operate. Alan, because you mentioned Section 230, I'm honor-bound to note that the uh, Fifth Circuit opinion also takes what I, I think is a, uh, the first time I've seen this in a judicial opinion, certainly on the appellate level, a view of 230 that significantly nar- would narrow the discretion that platforms have to engage in in content moderation, um, which I think is is worth flagging, especially since two thirty reform is very much in the air right now. Alan, I know you had something that you wanted to follow up on. If you want to jump in, well, yeah, I mean, j- just to say one thing about section section two thirty. I mean, the the to kind of summarize the the key part of section two thirty that really everyone cares about is, uh, or at least in this case, is C two, which basically says that a platform can't be held liable if it censors user content that its users or it finds objectionable. And it lists a bunch of categories of things that are objectionable, you know, lewd, lascivious, I I forget the exact uh, terminology. And then there's this catch-all provision or otherwise objectionable. And basically what the court does is it says, well, 
the phrase otherwise objectionable comes after because at the end of this long list of examples of things that are objectionable. So really, we should read otherwise objectionable as similarly objectionable, which to be clear, and you know, I teach statutory interpretation, um, that's not a crazy reading uh, of the statute. There are some scholars that agree with it. But it's, an, it's another example of the court making these incredibly bold legal conclusions with very little analysis, no sense of how the precedent has worked, and very little um, concern with the second order costs on the platforms. And that's actually the thing I, I really wanted to talk about because Alex mentioned the question of burden. This is something we haven't talked about in part because the court does such a bad job of talking about it. It really doesn't talk about it at all. And because I do think there's an understandable reluctance to worry too much about the burden of laws on what are literally the biggest companies in the world, right? Like no one weeps for Mark Zuckerberg and his billions and billions of dollars, but it's a mistake to just think of it that way. Because of course, when we talk about the burden on a platform, those costs, as it were, then get passed on to us, not necessarily in the form of fees, since all these platforms are in a sense free, right? We pay for it with our data, um, but in a sense of how useful the platforms are to us. And one thing that's really notable in this opinion and in the underlying law is that there's just no sense of whether any of this is technologically feasible. You know, these are state laws, so presumably the the most obvious response for the platforms would be to create separate, basically, experiences for people in one state versus another state, especially if different states have different state laws. That's not a thing that's easy to do. There's no switch that a platform can flip in order to satisfy all of these obligations. Um, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but that the Supreme Court will hopefully have to address is the question of whether or not any sort of regulation of content moderation can even happen at the state level. Um, under the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is an interpretation of the Commerce Clause of Article One of the Constitution, there are some limits to what states can do, even within their own states, to the extent that those regulations cause serious problems for interstate commerce. Now, the Dormant Commerce Clause is somewhat controversial. It's very complicated. The doctrine is all over the place. It's very fact-specific. But there is a point at which if one state's actions wreck the global economy or the national economy because they make it impossible for an important interstate commercial activity to continue, and platforms are certainly an important interstate commercial activity, then there have to be limits on that. So it, it, it's important, you know, as we talk about the First Amendment issues, which are obviously the, the core thing in, in this debate, it's important to realize that there's an additional set of complications that occurs because these are state initiatives rather than a federal law. So with that in mind, let's talk about what happens next. We have this Fifth Circuit ruling on the books. I know that the Florida Attorney General has appealed the 11th Circuit opinion up to the Supreme Court now that there is a circuit split. Uh, so we can perhaps anticipate the Supreme Court weighing in on this. I don't think it's crazy to imagine that that the, the Fifth Circuit sitting on Bonk might take a, a different view of the matter if NetChoice does decide to take it on Bonk. In the meantime, platforms are going to have to deal, as we said, with these really complicated technical questions. What do you both expect to see going forward? Are we heading into a, a rocky period for both platforms and First Amendment lawyers? Alex, let me start with you. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I, I strongly suspect that we'll see Supreme Court review of one or both of these cases very soon. You know, the 11th Circuit case is likely to reach the Supreme Court first, just because, as you noted, Florida has already petitioned for review. Net choice is expected to agree that the Supreme Court should take the case. Uh, and, you know, if they both agree on a, you know, a, a case of clear national importance, I think there's a good chance that the Supreme Court will take that case, particularly given that there's now a circuit split. You know, the Fifth Circuit, the proceedings may be a little bit different. I, you know, I, I think what will likely happen next is that uh, net choice will ask the Fifth Circuit to essentially stay the legal effect of its ruling, to, you know, to, to withhold its mandate which will have the effect of leaving the district court preliminary injunction in place to allow the platforms an opportunity to seek Supreme Court review. You know, the Fifth Circuit might actually deny that. And, you know, remember that they lifted the, uh, you know, they put in place a stay on the preliminary injunction pending appellate review, which is what the Supreme Court uh, reversed. And so they may actually reject uh, that request. 
from Net Choice. If they do, then I would expect Net Choice to ask the Supreme Court to stay uh, the Fifth Circuit's decision pending, uh, you know, at least an opportunity to petition for Supreme Court review. Either way, you know, I think we're likely to see one or both of these cases on the Supreme Court's docket, uh, you know, very shortly. Alan, what's what's your take? What are what are your bets for how this plays out on the Supreme Court level? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think one way or the other, this is going to get to the Supreme Court. It's there's a circuit split, even if the Fifth Circuit rehears on Bonk. I mean, unless they conclude exactly what the Eleventh Circuit did, which they probably won't, um, there's still going to be a circuit split. It's an issue of immense practical importance for the country, and it's also one that enough justices are obviously interested in. Um, you know, Justice Thomas has written about stuff about this. Justice Alito wrote a whole long thing uh, when the opinion, when the the Florida opinion got up to the Supreme Court um, about how he thinks this is really important and really interesting and he doesn't know what he he thinks. Um, You know, Kagan is a wild card. Um, So I think it's going to get to the Supreme Court. At which point, you know, I I think it's a loose ball, right? And I will say, I think there are very few true loose balls anymore in American constitutional law, in large part because of, frankly, the the polarization of of the judiciary. You know, I think at this point we really have, you know, a liberal camp and a conservative camp, and we kind of know what each of them thinks. And I think this is one of these rare issues that really cuts across a lot of the cleavages on the Supreme Court. You know, you have your your traditional kind of pro-business conservatives. I think of people like the Chief Justice. I think of Justice Kavanaugh, who I think would be very, very skeptical of these sorts of laws. You know, even if they're from conservative jurisdictions, these are justices that I think, you know, are, are more pro pro business than they are kind of pro GOP necessarily. And, you know, Justice Kavanaugh in in the, the Halleck decision, which is kind of a related decision about First Amendment issues, as well as some decisions he made uh, while a judge on the DC Circuit about net neutrality, has pretty clearly signaled that he does not think these laws work. And then I can also imagine some of the liberals joining him because they don't frankly trust state governments to exercise this sort of power in a reasonable way. So on the other hand, then, on the side that might support these opinions, again, I think you have people like Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, who I think, you know, whether it's because they have a particularly originalist view of the First Amendment or because the media environments that they operate in have convinced them that there is this epidemic of censorship, of big tech censorship, might be uh, more uh, favorable to these opinions. And then you can imagine some of the liberals actually joining with them, not because they believe that, but because they would love to narrow the scope of the First Amendment, which has in the last two decades become the, one of the main deregulatory vehicles that the Supreme Court has used. Uh, when people talk about First Amendment Lochnerism and Citizens United and Hobby Lobby and all of those opinions, you know, this might be one of the rare situations where you can pick off some conservatives to narrow the First Amendment. So like I said, it's, it's really, really hard to, to predict. And you know, even if the court agrees to invalidate one of these laws or both of these laws or supports one or upholds both, you can imagine a real fracturing on the appropriate test to apply. Should it be strict scrutiny? Should it be intermediate scrutiny? What should it be? So my my prediction is it's going to be really messy, but that does make it exciting. And again, it gives me hope because in, in a world of so much kind of legal sclerotism where everyone's dug into their camps, this is, a I think, a rare opportunity for the justices to really do some first order thinking and maybe advance the ball a little bit. Alex, do you want to hazard a prediction? Yeah, I'm not a betting man, but I think that the Supreme Court is very likely to invalidate the must carry provisions of these laws, uh, you know, to the extent that it hears these cases. I I think Alan's right that this is really is an open question on the Supreme Court and, you know, First Amendment cases, maybe more so than any other kind of, you know, category of constitutional cases tend to generate strange bedfellows in the Supreme Court. But I'd be pretty surprised if, you know, the Supreme Court upheld either of the must carry provisions in these laws. To my mind, the much closer question in the Supreme Court is going to be, you know, what level of scrutiny the court applies to the transparency provisions of the laws. Uh, Because even if, like me, you think that at least some transparency provisions should be subject to uh, scrutiny under Zouderer, Zouder is, you know, has never been applied in this context, uh, which is not surprising because this is an entirely new context and these cases just haven't been litigated before. But because it hasn't been, uh, you know, applied in precisely this context, how it should apply here, if it should apply here, is under theorized and underdeveloped. And, you know, there are a lot of open questions that if the Supreme Court goes down that path, it'll have to at least, you know, consider and maybe even answer some of them if, you know, if it doesn't just punt them all entirely to the lower courts. 
but that's what I'll be watching more closely. You know, I, I'd be genuinely shocked if there were, you know, more than say three votes to uphold the must carry provisions. But I think, you know, I, I have no idea what the court is going to do with the transparency provisions. All right, let's leave it there. Alex, Allen, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's occasional series on our online information ecosystem. We're still in the process of rejiggering the series a bit and are no longer running every Thursday. But keep an eye out for new episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. 